There was an older couple uh, who had never, ever been to the big city. They always lived in the, uh, a village. They'd never actually uh, even seen a big city by poster or film. They lived a very simple life. And so one day they decided that they would take a trip uh, to their local big city with their son, who we'll call Steve, um, just for the sake of a story. And so they went to the big city. They'd never, ever seen a tower block in their entire life. And they'd never even seen a lift within a tower block. As they got to the big city, they saw a mesmerizing skyscraper, unbelievably filled with awe. The older couple, who were quite old, with their son, walked into the skyscraper entrance, into the foyer, and they were just blown away with how wonderful this foyer to this skyscraper looked. The wife particularly was amazed as she noticed all the artwork and uh, how pretty they had made it. She came across the lift, the entrance to the elevator lift, and she didn't know what these two magic sliding doors were for, but she couldn't believe that people would go in, and then a few minutes later, they'd vanish. And she stood there for a good 10, 15 minutes, and then something life-changing happened. She watched as an old man walked into this magic room, the doors shut, and then, bing, about two minutes later, the doors opened, and a young, muscular, handsome man with a tan came out, and she looked, and her eyes lit up as she pictured her portly, elderly husband just in the corner, and she shouted to Steve, their son, Steve, go and get your dad. That was funnier than that, come on. That was a brilliant joke, never mind. Perhaps I over-explained it. It's going to be a long... Never mind. Thank you, Steve. Like a delayed reaction, isn't it? Anyway, um, things change quickly, don't they, in life. Sometimes things can just... Go 180, can't they? And you can go in a different direction or you find yourself somewhere you didn't expect to be and you're not quite sure how you got there or why. And we're going through this book of Daniel. And today, at chapter 7, the book of Daniel takes an instant turn into brand new territory. We're hitting the second half of the book. We've done the first six chapters uh, and now we're doing the rest of it uh, almost in one sermon. Um, if it felt like you've bitten off more than you can chew... Uh, well, that's slightly how I feel, but it's, a, it's a, an amazing second half, and there's a reason for doing it this way. But in a blink of an eye, this whole book that we've been looking at just feels completely different, almost like it's two books stuck together. If you're familiar with the Bible, you feel like it should be one Daniel and two Daniel, but it's not. It's just one complete book. Everything changes at chapter 7, and that's where we are. The language of this book changes. Within an instant, we've gone from him writing in Aramaic, the language of the Persian Empire, the universal language of the day. Suddenly, he records these visions in Hebrew, his mother tongue. The first half of the book is a historical, chronological account of life in captivity for him, Daniel, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've had all those stories in chronological historical order but not anymore it's different it's out of order it's not history anymore it's now prophetic the writing it's apocalyptic the word apocalyptic means revealing secret things the first half of the book is about what's taken place the second half of Daniel is about what's going to take place in the future so it's completely different from here on we've got a record of Daniel's visions up until now, he's been recording other people's visions. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, King Darius. And now it's his visions, his dreams, what God's saying to him. He's writing in the first person, no longer the third person. So it's completely different. The book changes just like that as we hit chapter 7. And what a change it is. 
It's the second half is so different to the first half. It's a little bit like uh, Champions League final a few years ago when Liverpool were 3-0 down. I think, was it Inter Milan or AC Milan? I forget. AC Milan. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so they were 3-0 down in the Champions League final, completely rubbish and useless in the first half. They went in at half-time. Someone said something. They came out in the second half, and they managed to score three goals and win the Champions League final. And it was an amazing display. A completely different team in the second half, yet being the same team. And that is a bit like Daniel. Completely same writer, same book, but it feels very different. So Daniel has three dreams or three visions um, that we're going to talk about. He also has one angelic conversation, but we'll come on to that next week. But three visions, they're not all one after another. They take place over a course of time. In chapter 7 and chapter 8, he has two dreams during the ill-fated reign of the Babylonian king, King Belshazzar. And then what happens from chapter 10 to chapter 12 takes place um, during a fourth king, King Cyrus, a fourth king, King Cyrus of Persia. And it's worth saying that um, interpretation of the second half of Daniel uh, is notoriously difficult. And much ink has been spilled as people have attempted to line up those visions of history in Daniel with actual history as well. Of course, it refers to actual history. Of course, it does. But it's notoriously hard to say that is that, that is that. Same with the book of Revelation. It's notoriously difficult to say that must be that. Because then you live another 50 years and you think, oh, it wasn't that after all. And then you look a bit foolish because you've got to rewrite your book if you've written a book. So it's really hard to marry up this apocalyptic prophetic imagery with secular history, although that is what the intention is. And in preparation for this talk, uh, I've come across some weird and wonderful views on these visions. And um, I must tell you about a dream I had since we're talking about dreams and visions. I had a dream a couple of weeks ago. I don't want you to think I'm weird, by the way. Um, I'm very conscious my tooth story made me sound a bit peculiar. Um, but I had a dream a few weeks ago, and it did involve people from this church, but we won't, I won't say who you were. And uh, in my dream, we were in a small, uh, a small box room. It was completely messy. The only reason I'm not mentioning who it was was I think it was their room. And uh, it was untidy. There was rubbish all over the floor, so you couldn't even see the floor. Boxes everywhere. And then suddenly, this person from this church, who I no longer speak to because of my dream, brought in a clear perspex container with two tarantulas in it. Have you ever had the tarantula dream? It's awful, isn't it? And uh, they weren't just regular tarantulas. They were about that big, spiky hair, and like a, like a red arrow at the back. It was awful. I looked at them thinking... Anyway, I turned around thinking, how can I get out? The door was there, but I didn't use it in my dream. And then I turned around, and they were gone. They were out of their cage. And I thought, you've got to let them out. And then I looked down, and there were then six of them by my feet. But they'd morphed into weird tarantula cockroaches. I woke up. <laughs> a, bit, a bit like that. But I, I thought, I wonder, there's probably some dream interpretation thing out there. So I actually Googled tarantulas with red stripes and, uh, and, uh, and I came up with the following definitions. <laughs> First, please don't take this the wrong way, and it does not refer to Andrea at all, um, that you've got an angry, aggressive woman in your life. <laughs> it's not Andrea at all. Um, number two, um, that something good was going to happen. How does that marry up? And number three, which I think is probably more the case, you've had too much cheese before you got to bed. Now, Daniel, when he had these visions, if you're familiar with the book, wasn't a result of too much cheese or angry ladies or anything else. Um, and unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to go through all these chapters in any real detail. 
It would need, every single one would need far more time than we have on a Sunday morning. But if you want that sort of thing, let me know and we can probably get it in some other time. So there's three visions, but I think there's one really important message in the second half of this book. So I'm going to, um, if you're not familiar at all with Daniel, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to assume that some of you at least have read it, or at least going to flick over to the chapters as I go through. So chapter 7, he has a, a vision, as Roger read, of four beasts that come out of the sea. And uh, very similar um, to the vision of the statue of the four kingdoms in chapter 2 of Daniel, the four kingdoms that will come one after the other, including the Babylonian Empire, all the way down to that. And most people see these four beasts and this statue as saying the same message, and the consensus of opinion is that this vision is about the four kingdoms that will come one after the other, the Babylonian, followed by the Medo-Persian, followed by the Greek under Alexander the Great, before finally the Roman Empire. Of course, some people see it differently, but that is the consensus of opinion. These four beasts are four kingdoms that will come. Chapter 8, if you flick over to chapter 8, he has another even stranger vision, uh, another dream where he sees a ram and a goat having a fight in a place called Susa. What's really interesting here, actually, and a lot of people try and date Daniel really late, really close to Jesus, because a lot of what he says, actually, is quite a lot of historical accuracy And they say, that must have come after the event. But actually, that's not true. We're looking at a book that was written about 600 BC. And he writes uh, about these two beasts, the the goat and the ram, that are are fighting each other. And uh, and most people agree, again, that this is a vision about the Medo-Persian Empire that will be destroyed and taken over by the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. And what's really interesting is he has this vision while still in Babylonia, in Babylon, Um, under the reign of the Babylonian king Belshazzar. And what's really interesting, the vision takes place in a city called Susa, which is 150 150 miles north of where he currently is. And in a few years after this vision, Susa will become the Persian capital. And that's obviously what the Greeks will take over and rule. Um, Most people agree, like I say, it's about those two kingdoms. And then finally, the third vision takes place between chapter 10, 11, and 12. And it's a vision of a great war that that fought between two sides. And Daniel sees this very much on a spiritual level. Uh, There's mention of angels fighting ungodly powers uh, and protecting God's people. You see Archangel Gabriel appear and Michael. Um, And all these chapters, um, as Daniel has these visions... Um, His perspective is being stretched right across history, right to the very end of history itself. And we know from teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24 that some of what Daniel says is referring to the very end of the world before Jesus Christ returns at the end of all things. As Christians, we believe Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Amen. And as you read Daniel's chapter 7 to 12... You just sit back and think, oh, wow, that's really hard. And this is why you rarely hear sermons on Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You might get the uh, lion's den in, but you don't really get this bit preached on because it's really hard to say that means that, that means that. And actually, as I prepare for this sermon, I came across one person that felt chapter 8, the ram and the goat, weren't referring to the Persians and the Greeks. They were referring to Russia and the U.S., Then you get other people that say the fourth beast in chapter 7 must be Nazi Germany, for example, and it's really hard to kind of marry those things with modern-day things as well. They could be right. Who am I to say they're not? They could be right. Um, And whilst I think it's understandable to have all these visions and ask the question, what does it mean? Does it mean that kingdom or that person or that president or that world leader? Does it mean any of those? I actually think that's the wrong question. 
Actually, I'm going to take a, a stab. Anyone seen iRobot, the film with Will Smith? Just put, please put a hand up if you've seen it. Do you know, it, it's a really good film, and it gives me a really good illustration for something, and no one's ever seen it except five of us. Never mind. Anyway, there's a bit in the film where he has to talk to a hologram. That's probably why you've not bothered watching it. And, uh, and he has to ask it a question, and it, every time he asks a question, who killed you, um, the hologram says, that's the wrong question. And eventually, he asks the right question. The guy says, that's the right question, and then turns off. So the wrong question when it comes to Daniel is, what's the beast? What's the ram? Is it that? Is it this? Trying to work out what these things might look like according to secular history. I think the right question is the question, why? Why did God give Daniel and us all these visions in the first place? What is the reason for those prophetic, apocalyptic visions being in Daniel chapter 7 to 12. And there are just a couple of things that I think matter. You see, Daniel sees four things in these visions. The first is he sees the future. He sees the short-term future, but he also sees the long-term. He's given insight into short-term secular history. We've already hinted at that. The kingdoms that will follow the Babylonian kingdom. But in the mix of all of this, Daniel is also seeing a later, longer view of history, even till the very end. In chapter 11, verse 40, um, these are the words we read. Hang on. You may have guessed it's not going to appear behind me. Um, we read, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him. This is a, 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 a kingly figure. Engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. But that were the end. See, Daniel's not just seeing what's coming next, he's seeing what's coming at the end of history. We believe history has a final date, a sell-by date. God is giving him visions of the future. He's shown what will unfold across human history. And what God is telling Daniel and us is that across human history, what you will have is kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom until God's kingdom finally comes in all its glory. And isn't that the case? Hasn't that been the case from day one? Whether it will be the rise of colonial kingdoms that rule much of our world until they, um, I guess, went out of fashion, for want of a better term, before things changed. Then there were financial kingdoms. Coca-Cola, I don't know if it's still the case, have more money than some countries. They're a kingdom. They can dictate how countries run or football teams are managed or other things like that. They can change foreign policy companies because they've got so much money. And they threaten to take it out. They're a kingdom, aren't they? We have kingdoms in education now, don't we? We have kingdoms in hospitals. We have different kingdoms being built. Some of them are okay. Some of them are not so okay. We also have social media kingdom building, don't we? We have thousands, millions of followers because people want to rule. They want to rule a group of subjects and tell them what to think and tell them how to behave. God has said in Daniel, this is what you can expect, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Jesus himself said that towards the end of history, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. When God's people entered the promised land, Joshua said to them, choose this day whom it is you will serve. Because we all exist in someone's kingdom. The Bible says there's a kingdom of darkness. And if you don't know Jesus, that's the kingdom you currently live in, whether you accept it or not. The kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. Christ died so that you could enter the kingdom of light. So God shows him the future. God shows him trouble. Um, it's worth noting that Daniel sees a real mixture of perspectives. Uh, the kind of message of the end and the now is a bit mixed up at times. But the message that comes across over and over and over... 
can't do it one-handed, um, over and over and over again, is that as these kingdoms grow and come, there is going to be trouble for God's people, first the Jews and then the church. In Daniel chapter 7, I'll read a few examples, verses 6 to 8, having uh, have this vision of these beasts coming out of the sea. It says, After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after in my vision I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims, trampled underfoot what was left. It was different from its former beasts, and it had ten horns. And then we read about that little horn that grows up and speaks boastfully. And then in verse 25 of the same chapter, if you flick over the page, we read about that little horn that he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and laws the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. God's people, the Jews, have been punished and afflicted mercilessly over the years. And even this nation has got much to be guilty about. In chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, we read again of God's people. It says, The goat became very angry. Sorry, it became very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew and stood between, uh, toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them grew another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land that would be Israel. And then verse 11 of the same chapter of this little horn, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice of the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. In 23 to 25, in the latter part of their reign, when the rebels had been completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. This is the interpretation of that same vision. A king, a master of intrigue, he will become very strong, not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation. He will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. He will be destroyed, but not by human power. And then chapter 11, um, oh, I'll read those anyway. There we are, we're here anyway. Um, verse 28 to 31, Daniel records this. Again, another vision about another king that will stand against God's people. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time... The outcome will be different from what was before. Ships of the western coastland will oppose him. He will lose heart. He will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. They will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And in verse 36, the king will do as he pleases, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is complete for what has been determined must take place. And then 41 and 45. 
He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. In the short term, Daniel, uh, most people agree, is talking about a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Some people would take a different view. He led after the, uh, the breakup of the, Roman, the Greek Empire, and he led one particular group who invaded and took over God's people in Israel, and he went up to Jerusalem. He self-titled himself God Manifest, and having conquered Jerusalem, he outlawed Jewish worship, and in place instructed that they worship Zeus, even installing an altar in God's temple and sacrificing pigs upon it. He led, this would lead to the Maccabean revolt. The Jews expressed their outrage and many of them were slaughtered. And that phrase, abomination that causes desolation, is that moment of sacrificing pigs to the altar of Zeus in God's holy temple. And so God, Daniel is seeing that, most people would agree. But he's also seeing, it would seem, another figure who will come at the end of history who Christians and the New Testament refer to over and over again as the Antichrist, a person who before Christ returns will rise up, a man who will seem to be of peace, but who will be against God, against God's people, against the church, and who will turn against any who keep hold of the truth of the Bible. It's all very bleak as Daniel has these visions, but he sees a third thing with that. He sees visions of angels and the heavenly realms and God himself. In chapter 7, we read of the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father. We read of him sitting on a throne. He actually sees Jesus, one like a son of man, coming in the clouds. That's all New Testament language for Jesus. He referred to himself as a son of man. We hear of him going up into the clouds when he ascends to heaven and that he will return the same way. In chapters 10, uh, verses 5 to 6 and 12, verses 6, are probably Jesus too, as he has that final vision. And actually, um, in the second half of this book, we get the birth, death, and return of Jesus all prophesied. And in chapter 9, actually, you get a timeline leading up to Jesus' birth and death. And so Daniel, in amongst all the chaos of history that he sees, has actually been showing God's ultimate sovereignty over the whole of the world, that despite evil kings and growing kingdoms, the message of Daniel over and over and over is that God is still on his throne, that every kingdom will have a shelf life. And that's right the way from chapter 7 to chapter 12, that God is actively opposing the unrighteous, ungodly nations and that he will bring them to task. And so the right question, why is Daniel having all these visions over what do they specifically mean in history? The reason the first one's the right question is because of the fourth thing that Daniel sees, and that is hope. You might remember back in week two, we asked, what's this book for? What's the purpose of Daniel? It's written to a people who are being oppressed, a people who are in exile, are people who are wondering what God is going to do with them next, how God's going to rescue them. It was written to inspire people to be faithful to their God in difficult circumstances, as a reminder that he will judge the nations, that his kingdom that is coming will be unshakable, that he will have the ultimate victory, despite it appearing that evil has the upper hand. God wins. And so, as we get ready next Sunday to finish our series, we must do it, knowing that life is tough. And in fact, I know that for some of you here this morning, life is currently heartbreakingly tough for you. 
I know for some of you here this morning, you paint on a smile before you come to church to hide the tears. I know some of you here feel in a permanent state of brokenness, not knowing who is ever going to put you back together. I know some of you here feel like you are like Daniel in exile in a foreign land. That some of you feel captive in a situation that was not your own, not your doing. That you're in a place you never intended to be, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and you feel you can't escape. Some of you here this morning may even be questioning where God is. That maybe God has forgotten you or perhaps he's not real. Or maybe you're even thinking, why do I bother asking for help or praying at all? The book of Daniel matters because God's people were in exile for 70 years before they would go back to their homeland and rebuild. Daniel never went home, but Daniel never gave up. Daniel lived even though he was a captive. Daniel was strong even though he was under somebody else's power. Why? Because Daniel saw clearly the truth above the darkness, that his God was still God that all this is temporary and his God is permanent that evil will get its just desserts and righteousness its just rewards Daniel knew that in a dark changing world the only place to stand or cling to was his unchanging God of all and finally Daniel had a vision of God's throne his kingdom his saviour God's plan, his goodness, his might, his power and his strength. And because of those things, he didn't give up. And so today, lift up your eyes from the floor to heaven, to where your God and mine is seated. Don't let that great liar whisper in your ear, all is lost. Because your God is still on the throne. Your king is still the king above all kings. Your saviour, Jesus Christ, the conqueror of death and defeater of darkness, is on his way back. Do not give up, but stand up. Stand strong. Look up. Look at that king and see that he is coming back, that he's looking back, that he knows everything you're going through, that he will neither leave you or forsake you, that even if you walk through that darkest valley, I promise you, you needn't feel any evil or fear it. For God will be going with you. The end is nigh. And it is good for God's people. We say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because the king is coming. The kingdoms of this world will fail. The darkness will retreat when the light of Christ becomes a second coming. Will you be ready to meet the king when he comes or will you trust in homes built on sand lives built on nothing or will you trust in the one that has been the rock from day one listen to those visions of Daniel don't get bogged down to what the goat actually is but hear the message kingdoms will come God's kingdom will come they will go his will stay trust that your citizenship is elsewhere and better Let's pray. Lord God, we just lift up, Father, this, oh, this second half of Daniel, Father. So much, to, so much more to say, really, Father, but that's true of so much of your word. And Father, it's exciting to try and engage with these visions because, Lord, you've given them for a reason. You've not given them for the church to ignore because they're complicated. 
Father, you've given them to us to encourage us. You gave those visions to Daniel, Lord, to encourage him, but to encourage those that would come after him, who would be oppressed by successive generations, Lord, of people that didn't like God's people. And Father, I want to pray for our Jewish brothers and sisters, Lord, across the world, for all those who still, from time to time, are persecuted, simply for who they are. Father, we pray protection on them. We pray they would come to know soon the Messiah that you've already sent for them. It's heartbreaking to think they still wait for Jesus, but he's already come. Father God, may your church engage more with your people, Lord, across the world, for Jewish people. We pray that we would share the gospel with them, Lord, in a loving way. But Lord, for all of us, Father, for those here who are Christians who are struggling, who are wondering what you're doing, Lord, may we lift our eyes up and know that whilst the darkness may look like it's got the upper hand, there is a day, the day of the Lord, when all evil will be dealt with. May we hope, Lord, not in what goes wrong in the present, but what will go right in the future. May we trust in you, Lord, even when the great liar whispers that we shouldn't. And Lord, I lift up any here this morning who are genuinely struggling. Lord, be with them and be their strength and open their eyes to the truth of what's going on in the heavenly realm. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.